Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Hello and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. This is a podcast which looks at a wide variety of different topics relating to the HR profession and particularly from a strategic perspective. My name is Chris Howard and uh, I'm the marketing director at Lace Partners and I am joined for I think either the second or third time by Kevin Green from What's Next Consultancy. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm not bad. I'm not bad at all, Chris. Thank you. I suppose I should really sort of talk about you. You're a best-selling author, published professional, writing Forbes magazine. You could probably do a better selling of yourself. So just for those people that haven't that haven't heard us before on the podcast, if you could just give us a one-minute synopsis as to who you are, your background, and then what we're going to do is we're going to talk today about talent management. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about talent management. One-minute one synopsis of my career. I suppose I've been in the HR business space for about 37 years. I'm a bit of an old fella. I was the chief exec for 10 years at the REC, which is the professional pod for the recruitment industry. Prior to that, I had a big HR job at Royal Mail, where I was the HR director of the letters business, which is a $7.5 billion turnover business that was going through huge amounts of change. We were losing a million and a half pounds a day and I was part of the leadership team that turned it around so that within four years we made 400 million pound profit. That involved losing 35,000 staff, reorganizing um, structures, processes, ways of doing business. And we also tried to do it in a very people-centric way, so trying to empower our leaders and managers. So I'm very proud of my time at Walmart. I love the job at the REC. Uh, but what I decided to do about two years ago now was to go on my own. Um, I didn't want to do another three or four years at the REC. I'd done everything I needed to do there. So I uh, decided to go non-exec and I'm sort of a non-exec um, or strategic advisor to about seven businesses, including Lace Partners. And during that time, I, I wrote my book, Competitive People Strategy, which was um, shortlisted for Business Book of the Year and has done very well. It's still a year on in the bestsellers list for HR and for recruitment in the UK. So I'm very proud of that. And I'm potentially going to do my second book, being commissioned to start looking at that. And um, so I'll perhaps say more about that uh, at a later date. So we're keen we'll to join you. At the end. Yeah. We'll give you a plug at the end. So it's uh, obviously I, you and I know each other very, very well. And if I was to look back at that quick synopsis, I'd say you're not a stranger to change. And particularly in the current market and the current mm. life that we're living in change and rapid change is something that we've all had to deal with quite quickly and over a very short period of time today's topic content focus that i wanted to just really pick your brains on is around as i mentioned earlier talent management so let's kick off by a nice general rounded sort of question and talk about you know we are in the post process of getting into we're not in the post covid world but we're getting into post lockdown so can you just give me your sort of view on some of the challenges that hr or maybe resourcing teams have faced in terms of talent management some of the big things that you've picked out that has really uh, really popped out since since we've gone into lockdown yeah. and now as we come out i mean i think there's there's i, I suppose let's go macro let's go look at the, the 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 environment so one of the things that's clearly changed is we went from a labor market where we had talent and skill shortages 
to one where we're going to have mass unemployment. And we're on the cusp of a huge growth in unemployment in the next two to three months as the furloughing scheme. You've got to remember we've got over 9 million people on furlough. You've got 2 million people that are self-employed freelancers being supported by government. You've also got unemployment at 2 million. So that means that a third of people in the UK workforce are currently not working. So what will happen is I think unemployment will get to about 3.5 million, perhaps 4 million. So the last time we had redundant, well not we have redundancies and unemployment at that level, you're talking about the early 80s. You know, even the recessions we've had since we the last recession, which was a big one, um, unemployment only got up to about eight and a half percent. It will get to 12, 13 percent. So mass unemployment, which is going to be a new phenomenon for many, many people in HR and talent management. And what does that mean? Well, it means two things. One is that let's do it from two different angles. One is about let's talk about retention. A lot of people sit tight. So one of the things that HR is going to be struggling with is you sort of want turnover. You want to uh, bring freshness in. You want to bring new capability, new skills, new energy. And during a a recession where unemployment is very high, people sit tight. They do not Mm. change jobs. So one of the challenges for organizations is, you know, how do I create some turnover? uh, So I'm bringing new energy, new ideas, fresh thinking into the organization. Uh, when my people are sitting tight. So that's one. And again, if you look at that from a, a business perspective, if you have lots of people just treading water, you know, productivity won't be as high, their energy won't be as great, they're likely to be a bit disgruntled. So there's one about thinking about the impact on your, your current workforce. Secondly, though, I think there is a challenge in terms of attracting talent to organizations. There'll be lots of people looking for jobs. So what you've got is if you put a job into the marketplace, you may have a lot of candidates. Mm. However, loads of those candidates will be unsuitable. So one of the big challenges for resourcing jobs is there's there's few jobs in the market at an oversupply of candidates. You end up having to, you know, spend a lot of time trying to find a you know, the the wheat from the chaff. So one of the challenges is how do we manage that hunting for skill and talent that we haven't got in our organization? There's a couple of other big challenges as well. So I think there's a bit about um, how do I go out to the marketplace? How do I manage that process? How do I make sure a great candidate experience? Um, The other bit, I suppose, which is interesting is about brand you know people's perception of organizations i think has shifted quite a lot uh, during this last uh, period and i think some of that will stick you know so i think employees uh, or people that are candidates and looking at an organization are going to look at how they've treated their people during this period you know i think that's a real employer brand statement you know yeah would you go and work for gordon ramsay would I go and work in a Witherspoons? would i work for guys at direct uh, yeah. uh, direct uh, whatever it is what- what's his name ashley's business I'll tell you what, um, Sports Direct. Sports Direct. I'll tell you what, it's quite interesting. So I've got a colleague, um, a friend of mine, who um, has been told that he's one of these people that is in the in the at-risk category because um, his business is making mass redundancies. They're a large organization. I won't talk about the sector or anything like that. But when I had a conversation with him about this, he said, Chris, what do you think I should do? You know, you've worked in the recruitment sector before. What's your thoughts? And I said to him, well, how do you feel about the organization? And he said, well, to be honest with you, if they don't value my talent, I know my value. 
you know, he's in a sales focused role. He said, I know my value. I know that I can deliver. I've got proven track record of that. He's only recently joined the organization six months ago. He's already saying, I'm almost a bit like, I'm almost, because they're putting me through this process and because of their poor communication, he's already got a negative perspective on this new employer of his. And, he, yeah, yeah. and you know, if someone else, he actually said he had a couple of uh, resourcing um, managers getting contact from competitors in the last month or so saying, you know, have a chat if you want to. And all of a sudden, whereas before he's batted that way, now he's thinking twice. So that goes back to your point on brand, well, doesn't it? It does. And, and if you're making redundancies, and again, it, it, it's, not, it's not just about what you do, it's how you do it. So you're absolutely right. There are many organizations that are going to have to make some really talented people redundant, people they don't particularly want to lose. So it's about how you go about that. So one of the things that's absolutely critical is that you communicate to people. First of all, you let them understand the business rationale. Secondly, you say it's not your fault because it isn't. You know, we've got to cut 25% of our cost base and it's got nothing to do with your particular skills. I've just got to reduce it. And then it's about how you handle it. So how you manage that redundancy process is really quite important because it's, you know, no one wants to be put at risk. No one wants to have to go through a process. But if you handle it well, and I've worked with um, a smallest business that made about 400 people redundant recently, and the chief exec phoned every single person up and said, I'm really sorry about this. It's not your fault. I hope you understand the business context. And if I get through the other side and the business survives, then we'll prioritize. If you want to come back, we'll give you priority. Now, the HR director then did a survey of those people that had left, those 400 people. 97% said they'd like to come back and work for the organization. So they'd gone through a horrible experience, been made redundant, and were still saying that I would come back and work for this organization. For me, that's a really big story about it's not what you do to people, it's how you make them feel. So yeah. you can take people through a really difficult process and make them feel reasonably positive about it, that they would come back and work for you. So that, for me, is a really good illustration of what organizations need to do at the moment in terms of, you know, brand, you know, employer brand is not a, a nice logo and a jobs page. It's actually how you treat the people that work for you. And what we've seen is if you look at candidates, they're getting much more sophisticated at trying to contact people in an organization before they join it. And at this moment in time, they'll, you know, so if I was a candidate, but if you were a candidate, Chris, you would look at, um, you'd find as many people on Twitter that work for that organization. You'd hunt LinkedIn and you'd ask a few general questions and you'd try and find places where the employees talk. You'd look at their glass door score. You'd look at a whole range of things. And what you're trying to get is how good are these people to their employees? And if it's, uh, if it's positive, then, you know, you think about applying. But if it's negative, it puts you off and you don't even need, a, you know, you won't even apply. So brand has become something which has gone from being all soft and fluffy into being something which really makes a difference in terms of attracting talent and retaining it in your organization. And it's not about adverts and job boards and job pages. Mm. It's about how you treat your employees every day. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I can't can't really disagree with that in any way, shape or form, being a branding person and an, certainly an int having an interest in the employer brand side. Let's um, let's kick the conversation on just a little bit and let's talk about this post-COVID. Well, sorry, I keep saying post-COVID. Well, it's a post-lockdown world, isn't it? Because post-COVID is probably 2025 at this rate. Yeah. Um, let's talk about productivity. So you and I were having a conversation um, just before we uh, started recording about how, you know, some people that we've spoken to have almost been a bit like, you know, I've been stuck at home for four months now. 
And so you, and we're now getting to a point where some companies are bringing people back to work. And we've got this sort of weird situation in which line managers almost are having to sort of do hybrid working. You know, what are some of the challenges that you think line managers are going to face? What are some of the challenges you think are going to be around productivity in businesses? Do you think that productivity is going to become an issue because of some of these extra obstacles that are being put in the way of uh, line managers and businesses? Yeah, I think there's a challenge in all of this, but I also think there's a great opportunity. One of the things that I think is is interesting is that when you think about productivity, I mean, most people seem to indicate that they think that during this period, while people have been working at home, productivity has improved. And that's because you get perhaps a longer day, people aren't commuting, there's less informal conversation, people are quite focused. Now, I think like you, I think that's waning. I think people are, mm. you know, you've got to remember, this was all a bit of a novelty. Everyone yeah. did it at the same time. Businesses worked really hard at communicating and engaging people. And four months on, it's hard to keep that momentum going. Secondly, I think people just got a bit bored with it. So I think that, you know, productivity is most probably on the wane a little bit. But I do think there's a big challenge, which is how do you manage hybrid teams? How do you manage teams where you've got some people in the office and some people at home? How you know? Whereas at the moment you have a you know teams call. What happens when half the teams in the office and the other half are at home? You know, it makes it more difficult to manage. You know, yeah. I think also people that you know there's a, there's a bit about how do you choose which who comes back to work? Is it based on their personal circumstances? Is it based on how they feel about it? Is it the length of their commute? And then you'll get people that are coming into work and are being observed and being, you know, uh, looked at and managed in a different way to the people at home. So you're going to end up with lots of differences. And what differences can cause is potentially people feeling it's unfair. Actually, I'm being a micromanaged because I happen to be in the office and that person out, we haven't seen them for six months and they're working at home. No one knows what they're up to. So. Mm. The challenge for management and leadership, and I think this is a big opportunity, is to focus on outputs. The problem, I think, with management and leadership quite often and how it's taught and how people do it on a day-to-day basis is it manages the inputs. You manage the people and you sit on top of them and, and you get them to deliver what you is required. Whereas I think if you articulate the outputs and the outcomes you're looking for, then you judge people on the out, on that. You don't worry about how many hours they're doing and how much how much time they're spending online and whether they come to every team's call or because people are getting obsessed about the wrong stuff. What you've got to look at is what's important in this person's work and are they delivering on it? So articulating the outcomes and the outputs, which I think great leaders and managers do anyhow. You don't you know, I always say to leaders when I'm talking to them, how many people when you've interviewed them, and I've done thousands of interviews over the years, no one has ever said to me. I love being micromanaged. I need to be told every moment of every day what I should do. We ask that question. How do you, you know, how can I bring the best out of you? And nearly everyone says, I need some space. I want to be given big picture and allowed to get on and do it my own way. And then what we do is we do the opposite when we get them into the organization. In reality, what I think this has created is a huge opportunity for leaders and for the HR community to say, let's turn how we manage people to being much more focused on the outcomes and the outputs. And, and that will enable there to be more consistency of approach because there's going to be lots of people that don't really want to return to work. There's going to be, uh, you're going to be managing some people in the office and some people at home. So if you're consistent in how you manage and lead people, you've got the best chance of, of improving productivity and motivating and engaging the people that work in your team and your organization.
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that about some people unwilling to return to the office. And, you know, there's it's a very real conversation. And there's been stories about, you know, people t- taking advantage of, of furlough. I don't believe 90, I don't believe a lot of these stories. You know, you had the, the guy, um, I think it was from Pimlico Plumbers, who went on to this morning and said, oh, you know, half of my workers are, uh, you know, they don't want to return. They're quite happy having been given this uh, this time off. I'm not sure about that because this is a this is a serious illness that's affected people and people have lost loved ones, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a question around people return to the office. Now, with this this podcast is focused on the talent management side, the talent attraction side, but also it's a skills question, isn't it? You know, where can businesses, if you've got a collective of your workforce that suddenly don't want to return to the office, how are we going to be able to access the skills needed if they can't if they can't work from home and there's plenty of businesses and plenty of industries that can't work from home how are we going to access how are businesses going to access the skills needed to to meet the demand when things start to pick up again yeah i mean it's a challenge i mean one thing i suppose is you know let's go the firstly let's go the other way i think there's a lot of organizations where they found that a lot of people can work from home so if people mm. really don't want to return what you've got to ask yourself is do I need them to return? Can mm. I manage them differently and can they continue to work at home? And what you might be doing, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the psychological contract. I think a lot of employers are going to be saying to people, look, we're not going to have an office anymore or we're going to have, we're going to have a lot less office space. What I really want you to do is to come into a team meeting once a week and the rest of the time you can work from home or yeah. offer some shared space or I need you in the office one day a week. Now, I think that's what you're going to find is a lot of hybrid working, and that's the people that can do their job at home. If you're a, a waiter uh, or uh, you work in a bar or you work on a, I don't know, where you're meeting customers face-to-face, you can't do your job at home. So I think what employers have got to do is do two things. One is they've got to be sympathetic to individual circumstances as best they can. Um, and if it's a health issue, then you know you have to make a decision about whether these individuals will ever be able to come back and do the job as it you know as you want it done and it needs to be done and if they if they can't then you need to find a way of potentially exiting them in a way which is you know as, as positive as it can be in terms of an experience and we just talked about that but what i think employers will need to do is actually say well how could you do this job i think they're going to have to be creative you know there will be lots of people who go well i'll tell you what some of this is about childcare or or whatever, and I could do the job, but I can't do it five days a week now. I could do it three days a week, or I would like to start at 10 o'clock in the morning and work till six. And I think most employers, if you've got a really good employee that had you know, good scores, was very productive, great dealing with customers, then you want to be flexible. So I think what you're going to find is employers are going to have to embrace flexible working like never before, partly because People can work from home and they may want to work from home and you're going to have to come up with hybrid ways of working. Secondly, I think when people can't do the job as it was originally done, you're going to want to retain some of that talent. I also think that employers that are going to do well attracting talent in the future are going to be asked more and more questions about flexible working. You know, actually, what are the hours of work and where are I I meant to work? You know, and if you go, do you know what? It doesn't really matter where, you know, as long as you can get to the office once a week or once a fortnight or once a month, I don't care if you, you know, where you can do the job from where it suits you mm. now. And actually, if I'm managing you by output, I don't care whether you start at eight and finish at six or start every lunchtime and work in the evenings because your part, you know, your partner works part time and they work in the morning. You need to look after your kid work in the afternoon and evenings. 
You know, mm. it depends. So I think what you're going to have is employers that are going to have to embrace flexible working and really be very creative because I think it will make them, it'll give them an advantage in the, the market in terms of retaining the talent they want to retain and attracting people that want to work in a different way. Well, I was going to say that to you, actually. That was going to be my next question. So maybe you can elaborate or you can just say, well, I've yeah. done that. So we'll move on to the next one. Um, it was it was around this idea of global talent pools, or maybe not global, but certainly, you know, if you've got a business that, you know, based in London, for example, you know, I'm based in London, so that's my frame of reference. And traditionally, they'd have looked anyone inside the N25, perhaps, or just outside home counties type thing. Is life going to be almost to, to get the right type of skills in certain industries? Does it suddenly become easier? because you've got a wider pool of talent to draw on if you're willing to be flexible. Yeah, it does. I think it does give you. I mean, there are lots of organisations that are now talking about non-location-specific roles. So that means you can do your job anywhere. Now, there are diff- there are nuances to this. You know, And again, I think your organisations need to think this through. But if there is a particular job that can be done and you say, look, I need you to come to the office once a month, you know, and – you know, you're a programmer or, a, um, I don't know, a coder or doing some technical work or designing websites or something. I don't know. There's loads of jobs that can be done sort of remotely from home. Then if you're prepared to come to the office once a month, you can live in France. You can live anywhere in the UK. You live in Ireland, you know, as long as it's not a huge journey. Now, there will be somewhere I go, someone says, well, I could do, I'd like to do my job in New York. Right. Well, I've got to come to the office once a month. Who pays for that? Am I paying mm-hmm. for that? Are you paying for that? That's one question. Secondly, do time zones have an impact on people's performance and being part of an organization? Now, I know that if you have loads of people working in different time zones, sometimes that gives you an advantage because you can – on project works, there are organizations that have people working 24-7 on a project. It moves across the time zones. So. Yeah. Sometimes that gives you a real advantage, but sometimes if you want to have a team call and you've got half the people in the States and other people in Asia, it's very difficult to get everyone together at the same time. So I think there are some logistical challenges that people need to think through. But I do think if you thought, well, traditionally our office was in central London and, you know, everyone needed to you know be in the office most days, so they needed to live within the M25. If you go, well, actually, only need to come once a week, that opens up the rest of the UK easily. You know, you can work in yeah. Scotland. You know, I could work in a nice croft overlooking the sea doing my job <laughs> and get on a train and be in London to do once a week. You know, I'll get in at 10 and uh, leave at 4. I can work on the train and I could do my job. So who cares? The employer yeah. should be going, don't really make any difference. As long as I'm clear about when I need you in the office and what, or how I need you to engage with the rest of the organisation, you're capable of doing the job. I manage you on the outputs. Then I think there's going to be a lot of this, actually. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of... A lot of people pushing for it as well, Chris. A lot of candidates going, that's how I want to work. I want to work at home, but I'm happy to travel one day a week or. Yeah. And so that should be both beneficial for candidates, but also employers, because there's that big word, that that O word, outputs. That's the key, isn't it? It's like, it doesn't matter if I'm you're in your croft in, uh, in yeah. the highlands and or I'm on the south coast somewhere, you know, outputs. If outputs work, then then that's fine. All right. Let's. um. Let's go into some forecasting. Let's go into some Predictatron 5000s now. People have been talking about a second wave. We've heard it so much, haven't we, across all of the media and things like that. Everyone seems to expect this second wave is going to happen. How much do you think that potential second wave pandemic could play in terms of 
you know, forecasting for your talent attraction plans or anything like that? Do you think it's going to play? Do you think businesses right now are looking at, or, you know, is there going to be this second wave in October or is it going to be January? Are we going to see it next summer? And how difficult does that make the life of a HRD or a resourcing director? Yeah, I mean, it, make, it certainly makes life difficult because I think what we, I think you've said it a couple of times, Chris, you know, the lockdown is finishing uh, or winding up, but people are working in different ways. I think people are concerned about second wave. I think the UK government's been quite clear. It's unlikely to do a national lockdown. It's going to try and do it more locally. You know, we've seen mm. in Leicester, they've closed down Leicester. I mean, I think if London gets a second wave, that would be really interesting. I think mm. that would, you know, have a big impact on our economy. But clearly, we need people to be working, and we recognise a lot of people can work at home. But you have to remember that we still had nine million people on furlough. You know, a lot of people of those jobs cannot do their work while uh, they're at home. So, I think a second wave is, is is a real problem from an economic point of view. From an HR point of view, I think if you look at it, um, I think it's about being agile. So, I think it's about trying to bring people back, doing it in a safe way, managing people in a hybrid way, but with an eye to. And if we have to lock down, we can flip quite quickly. We can go back to it and we can survive and we can deliver what we need to do. So I think that's what organisations are currently. So they're trying to get people back, get them back at the pace they want to come back, make more people feel safe. But with an eye to, we might need to revert quite quickly to the other approach. Um, Mm. But I do think in terms of, you know, resource planning, one of the great challenges is we just don't know how the economy is going to recover. I mean, my take is it's sort of U-shaped or a Nike, Nike whoosh-shaped. You know, it takes a, it's yeah. going to take a while to come back. I mean, I think we're going to have another three or four months of people just getting used to this. Um, and I don't think the economy will really start to move until the first part of 2021. And if we don't have a second wave, I would hope that you know, businesses have adapted and by the middle of next year, the economy is at 90, 95% of what it was in 2000, uh, 2019. So, you know, not that the world is, is the same as it was before, but from an economic perspective, we're getting close to, you know, um, you know, a, a thriving economy with some growth in it. So, yeah, I think it's just difficult. It's difficult to plan is the challenge. So you've got to be agile. You've got to have a long-term view of where you're trying to get to and what this looks like and what people you want to hire and how you're going to allow them to work and all the things we talked about, about flexibility. And then you've got to go, but I need to be able to flip and get back into a lockdown mode really, really quickly if there's a second wave. I mean, yeah. the good news is, is, you know, in reality, this isn't going to go away until we get a vaccine. And I think, you know, that's the middle of next year at the earliest. So, I think we are going to have to live with this and businesses are going to have to be very adaptable, very agile, very responsive, both to their people and to their customers. Yeah. Um, and, and just we're just reaching towards the end of the podcast. So I've got one final question because I th- I find this a fascinating one. So just any general thoughts, I think, is this uh, is, is this final question I want to ask you about, which is around this idea of renting talent. I find that yeah. fascinating. You've got some businesses that, you know, across industries have decided to collaborate uh, where you might have a, a set of furloughed workers because they can't do a particular job, then being rented out. Do you think we might see some more of that? Or do you think that's a very yeah. unique scenario that yeah. was for a unique situation? I, I mean, I, I think, you know, if I, you know, I think you've got to remember that in the UK labour market, there's four and a half million people that work as flexible contractors, consultants, self-employed, freelancers, whatever you want to call them, that's going to grow. 
And this, mm. this, this, this period of disruption will encourage a lot of people to go freelance. You know, I haven't got a permanent job or I'll get in a permanent job, but it's only 10 hours a week. So I've got to make up my inking. I'm going to do second gig and do my own thing. So I think we're going to find a huge growth in people uh, taking responsibility and becoming freelancers or contractors or consultants. That's good news for employers because you can dip in and get really skilled people for a period of time and you go back to output. I just want you to come in for three months and manage that activity and deliver that. So I think you start to think about it. It creates, if you're more output driven and outcome focused, you can start to employ people in different ways and you end up with a more hybrid. So I think there's going to be huge growth in all of that flexible working. I think you will find organizations collaborating different. I think you will find organizations trying to support other people in their supply chain and people that they know and, and renting of, Resource, I think, is quite interesting. Um, there certainly are examples of it, and I think there will be more. Whether it becomes commonplace, I'm not quite sure about because, again, it's got mm. it's, it's like any market. It's supply and demand. I've got a lot yeah. of people that I'd like to retain, uh, but I don't need them at the moment. You've got a short-term need where you need these types of skills and people for the same time as I don't need them. And actually, if it works for both organizations, why wouldn't you do that? No. Again, I, I mean, so I think you're going to get a much more – fragmented, um, flexible labor market. And the really good organizations are going to be the ones that can leverage it and use it so that they're going to have to be much more porous. The organization have to be much more fluid. It's not just about full-time employees. It's about, you know, full-time employees plus a couple of firms that work quite closely that we collaborate on. Plus we've got some freelancers, plus we've got some contractors. So the workforce can be, big and small at the same time. And I think that's a challenge. And the challenge for HR is how do you treat all those people the same? I mean, LACE have this issue. You know, you've got freelance consultants who are hugely important in terms of your project delivery. Mm -hmm. How well you treat them is really important. Do you treat them exactly the same as an employee? Well, no, but we really want to stay close to them. We want to engage them. We want to develop them. We want to grow them. We want to communicate with them. We want them to know about us and who we are and our values. So I just think organizations are going to become much more amoeba-like. They're going to become much more fluid where it isn't just about full-time permanent employees, but a range of different types of relationships with individuals and businesses where they can get the skills and capabilities they need to provide their services to the customers. I mean, I think it's a really exciting time. I would say that. While it's going to be challenging, this is an amazing experiment. And what mm-hmm. we will find is lots of things. I don't think the labor market and employment will remain the same. I think we're going through a a significant shift and and that means that hr directors are at the forefront of trying to understand this and then think about what they do so that they get some commercial advantage out of it for their organization but it does mean they need to think differently about people and capability and outcomes and outputs as we've talked a lot about today yeah definitely outputs flexibility engagement in people yep all the all the key uh topics covered and it's been really really good talking to you actually um some fascinating insights so thank you very very much for coming on uh we've just got a minute or two so do you want to tell me what your next topic is going to be for your next book then yeah before we wrap up? it's likely to be an extension so um actually working with lace partners when we did the hr on the offensive stuff the last chapter of the book was around hr uh going forward um I suspect it's going to be, and we're talking about it at the moment, so it isn't finalised, it's going to be about HR in the future. So it's likely to be all the stuff we just talked about, Chris. 
So it's going to be about how does an HR director and how does HR respond to a changing environment? How does it really think about some of the things it needs to think about? But what does great look like from an HR director and their team going forward? I think it's remarkably different. I think we're going to see a lot of turnover in senior HR people in the next year, 18 mm. months, because I think what worked, you know, steady state, you know, it's all about employment. It's all about compliance. It's all about policies. I think organizations are going to be in a state of flux for a good year, 18 months, two years. And HR has got to be able to get in front of the business and think differently. So, you know, always, I mean, it was there anyhow. And I was always been slightly critical of our profession, but also wanting it to develop and grow. And I think it has progressed. But I think the speed of change within HR is going to be profound. So I want the next book to, to, book to get in front of that and show a roadmap to HR people about what does the HR professional and director look like um, in the next few years. Great stuff. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. Do you want to tell the people out there in uh, podcast land where that you can be found on the socials? Yeah, I mean, on Twitter, I, I, I'm there. It's Kevin Green, uh, WNC. Um, so that's Twitter. LinkedIn, you know, just look up the name and just pop right, Kevin Green. <laughs> just look Kevin Green, type in Kevin Green. There's quite a few Kevin Greens, but I'm sort of quite near the top of the list, so you should be fine. And I do put a lot of content out um, both on Twitter and on um, LinkedIn. Um, obviously, longer form blogs and stuff tend to be uh, LinkedIn based. But anyhow. Brilliant. Kevin, thank you very much for joining me. This has been the HR on the Offensive podcast. Really glad that you could have joined us today, listener. And you can find our podcast in all of the usual places on iTunes, on Spotify. Uh, you can go to the Lace Partners website, which is lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. Uh, we're also on SoundCloud as well. So you can download, listen. Um, I often listen to my podcast when I'm out running. So I'm sure that I'll hear your dosit tones when I go running at some stage, Kevin. So thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.